Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. So great. My heart is full and my uh, spirit is soaring. I'm sure that yours is too. And I am eager to proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, that wooden cross and its significance for the rest of your life and for eternity and that empty stone tomb and its significance for your life here and now and also for all of eternity. A short sermon this morning, just two or three verses that I want to directly offer and apply and exhort to those of you who are guests and maybe you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you're a Christian. And then also two or three verses that I want to offer and direct and exhort to the church family who has been born again, how that cross and that empty tomb ought to be changing your life day after day after day. And as we prepare to open up God's word, let us pray and ask God to open our hearts. Living God, as we bow our heads in prayer, we bow our hearts before you and we ask in this moment that you would open our heart, that you would soften our spirit. In this moment, as far as we're able, we offer ourselves to you. We dare do no less, for you are almighty God. And we ask that you would work a good work of resurrection power in us by your word. Amen. So first, a couple of simple verses to apply and to offer directly to those of you who are guests, who aren't Christian, or you're not sure that you're a Christian. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 exactly what I'm trying to do here in these brief moments that we have together, and it says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Biblical preaching is delivering to someone else not what the preacher makes up, but what he has himself received. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The Bible says that of first importance is the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And the gospel means, well, you know what it is in life that we all have sinned. All the years that I've been doing this as a pastor, I've very rarely had to argue with anybody, even an atheist unbeliever, I've very rarely had to argue with them that we all sin. I've argued a lot of times with a lot of people about the fact that what they were doing at that particular moment was sin because they didn't want to hear it. But just in general, you know that we hurt each other. You know that you live with regret. I sure do. And I'm a full-time religious guy. But I have all sorts of regrets of things that I failed to do for my family, for my friends, and things that I should have done that I didn't and things that I did that I know I shouldn't have done. We all know that we've sinned. I kind of think that's the easy part. The almost unbelievable part is that the God against whom we have sinned, uh, he didn't give up and he didn't turn away. But the Bible says, maybe you've heard this one before. The Bible says in John chapter 3, 
verses 16 and following, that even though we sinned, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. This is the message of the gospel that even though we have sinned, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to be our savior, the substitute, dying in the cross in our place and rising again that we might have new life. And in presenting this gospel, especially to those who haven't yet believed it, there's sometimes holdbacks and rejections of maybe why you don't want to believe it or you're not sure about all of this. And I would just say that with an open Bible and an open heart, I'd want to talk through those objections. They don't, they don't frighten me. Um, God has the answers. One objection that is used very often for why people maybe don't believe in Christianity or don't buy the whole thing. The first time I heard it from an atheist, it kind of went Arkansas or Afghanistan. It's become, a, it's become a popular argument. Maybe you've heard it, Arkansas or Afghanistan. The objection from somebody who believes that this whole Christianity thing is like whatever, just people made it up. The objection is, well, of course, if you were born in Arkansas, you would believe that Christianity is true and Islam is false. But if you were born in Afghanistan with all your heart, you would believe that Islam is true and Christianity is false. You kind of scratch your head, well, well, really? The fatal flaw in that objection is, of course, that the atheist or relativist who's making that objection would have to just be asked, well, is your atheism or your relativism not a product of where you grew up and who influenced you when you were a kid? Well, of course, where you grew up and who influenced you when you were a kid is a, is a strong component in who you become. Of course it is. This is a universal truth. But where you grew up and who influenced you as a kid is not the only determinative factor in who you become. Uh, everybody believes that how you grow up has a huge influence in what kind of person you become. No sane person denies that. I certainly believe that. But though beliefs are influenced by your upbringing, how you end up and what you end up believing is not totally determined by your upbringing. Of course not. We know that because people change. People get converted. People decide to move from one way of living to another way of living. I know that's true. I know that Christianity isn't just something that you believe because you grew up hearing about it. I know that's true. And I could in a, in a way, in a, in a human way, I could approve that to you. Right now in this room, there are dozens and dozens of people who are born again, baptized, believing members of this church who did not grow up 
in a Christian home or in Arkansas for that matter. But at some point in their life, though they weren't believing, they heard the declaration of what the Son of God did on the cross. And they heard the declaration of it is finished. And they heard the declaration of the empty tomb. And they were born again. And they believe. Sadly, but equally true, I could knock down that rejection in a, in a sort of a sad way. I know dozens of people who did grow up in this church and they had every Christian influence in their life. And today, they're not Christian and they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because hearts harden. Spirits refuse to soften and believe. We have prayed that on this morning in this service, hearts would soften. And some of those, some of you here who have not yet believed that this would be the day of your conversion, that you would believe that on the cross, the one sinless one who had no sin of his own to die for, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on that cross, that you would believe that. And further, that you would believe that after that was finished, though they put his dead body in the tomb, he rose again. This was the, the declaration of heaven that sin really had been defeated and that eternal life and salvation, secure salvation, is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that you'd be converted. What the Bible says in Ephesians 2 is that by grace, you would be saved through faith. The Bible says there that salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's an important verse. That salvation is not your own doing. It's the gift of God through Jesus Christ, not a result of works that no one should boast. These are a couple of verses that I wanted to share with those of you here who are guests. Maybe you're not yet a believer. But I also wanted to share a couple of verses with those of you here who are a part of the church family. You have been born again, and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you very directly about how that wooden cross and that stone empty tomb ought to be impacting the way you think, the way you speak, the way you live today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life. A survey of the New Testament would show you that uh, basically the whole New Testament is an explanation of the consequences of the resurrection of the Christ. That's what the New Testament is. You know, not a word of the New Testament was written before Christ rose from the dead. The entire New Testament was written as an explanation of all of the implications, both in this life and in the life which is coming, of the consequences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible says that for Christians, just as Christ died, if you are a Christian, you, the old you, died. And just as Christ rose again, if you are a Christian, your life now is a whole new life. 
It's not just a sprinkling of religion that you would have gotten if you grew up in Afghanistan or if you grew up in Arkansas. It is a new life because the Spirit of Christ, who is now alive, is alive in all of those who belong to him. Here are a couple places that the Bible says that. These belong to you as Christians. Romans 6, beginning in verse 4. Romans 6, beginning in verse 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too now live a new life. His resurrection, our new life. His new life from the dead, our new life from our old way of living. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, church, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, and do not let sin reign in your mortal body with its evil desires. Romans 6 says that all the evil desires of sin that used to trip you up, just as Christ died on the cross, you're to die to those old ways of living. Listen to how he says it in Colossians 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He argues from the resurrection. The entire New Testament is an argument from the resurrection that if Christ now has new life, if you are in Christ, now you have new life and your old way of living is no longer your way of living. Everything is made new in Jesus Christ. To rise in union with Christ means that now you live as a new creature. That empty tomb is the evidence, not just that the fight against death and sin has been joined and we have someone who's fighting for us. The empty tomb is evidence that Satan and sin and death have been defeated by Jesus. And the whole New Testament is a call to walk not in your own strength, but in the strength that Jesus now gives you because of his triumph over the grave. To rise with Christ means you have new power over your old way of living. And every Christian that I know wants more power over their old way of living so that they can truly change. I've never known a genuine Christian who said, I'm good, I don't have to change anymore. Every Christian that I know, in fact, the more... uh, Christianly they live, the more they want to be changed more and more and more by Jesus. And that's what the New Testament takes the resurrection to be, the power to actually change. In Christ, the old you died, the new you now lives. That's what Romans 6 says, that's what Colossians 3 says. And so to live a new Christian life is to live a life of repentance from sin and of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, those two words are big for Christians, repentance and praise, repentance and praise. Because those two words, repentance and praise, they actually represent the sane, the right, the joyful, the light-filled, the love-filled way of living. To repent 
is to realize I'm going the way of sin, I'm going the way of self, and to repent is to turn around and go the other way. And to praise and worship is to realize something or someone has to be at the tip top. And to praise or worship Christ is to finally come to sanity that nothing else belongs to be at the tip top but Jesus Christ and him alone. And so repentance and praise are two forms of, uh, of centered or sane living. To live any other way is to be eccentric. Have you ever known someone who is eccentric? If you know a woman who lives by herself but has 11 cats that crawl all over her, she is eccentric. If you, if you know an old guy who drives a car and he has super glued 20,000 pennies that all have the same date on them to the outside of his car, that is an eccentric old man. Someone who's eccentric is sort of off. Eccentric, see the word in your mind? Eccentric, centric, centered, ec, off. To live without repentance is to live an eccentric life. Because instead of the word of God, the truth, the way, being center, your appetites are going to become the center. Like what you feel like doing for the next three minutes is going to become the center. That's insane. And to live a life of worship to refuse to live a life of worship of Christ is an eccentric life because some other thing that's not nearly as beautiful, not nearly as powerful as Jesus Christ now has the tip-top spot and Christ doesn't. That doesn't make any sense. The New Testament says in Colossians 3, in Romans 6, in so many places, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is living in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way to not live an eccentric life, but to live a life that is lived in the sanity of God's grace, God's overcoming power over sin, and all the rest. This is what it's all about. And so Christians are called to live in, in that way. One more verse for Christians is 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, and verse 3. First Peter says that, Peter says he wants grace and peace to be multiplied to you. And then he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his grace mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is one of those $20 Bible words that if we import what the world means by hope, we just don't get it. Hope biblically is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Think about um, the first set of kids who were up here. Maybe pick an eight-year-old at random from those kids. This is what hope is. That little eight-year-old says, I hope I'm getting a bike for my birthday. I hope I'm getting a bike for my birthday. And that little eight-year-old kid, his bedroom is the front bedroom in the house right by where his dad pulls the SUV into the driveway. And so that little eight-year-old goes to sleep at night and he's hoping he's getting a bike. He doesn't sleep real, he sleeps pretty lightly. And so through his window, he sees the flash of his dad's SUV lights. 
And so dad can't see him, but he just pops out of bed, looks out the window. And he sees dad get out the door of that SUV, pop the back, and pull a bike out the back. Kid sees the tires, sees the little handlebars. Maybe it's Spider-Man or exactly the kind that he asked for. He sees it in the red tail lights of the SUV. Same kid puts his head on the same pillow, and maybe he still says, I hope I'm getting a bike. That dude knows he's getting a bike. He knows he's getting a bike. It's still a hope because he's not riding the bike at midnight when he's peeping out the window, but he knows he's getting that bike. When Peter uses the word hope that we're born again to a resurrection hope, this is what he means. Christian hope is a fact from the future that is enjoyed in the present. There's no maybe about it. It's a fact from the future that is enjoyed in the present. This is why in Romans 6 and in Colossians 3 it says, the hope of the gospel, the hope of resurrection is the only way for, for, for self-centered husbands to be transformed by the gospel of Christ. It is the only way for a woman or a man who seems to be enslaved to habits of sin to break those habits of sin. It is by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That power operative in the born-again believer is what gives him or her victory over sin. This is a living hope. This is a sure hope. It doesn't mean that the rest of your life is going to be sinless because I suppose you're still you. But it sure does mean that the rest of your life will be changed by the indwelling power of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. This is the hope that in the name of Jesus, we proclaim to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. We commend to you the strong and certain hope of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads in prayer, we bow our hearts before you, and as we have opened your word, in humility we ask you to open our hearts. Grant faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant an understanding of his work on the cross, bearing our sin. Grant faith in his resurrection from the grave because sin and death and the devil were defeated. And so now by the power of your word, by the power of your resurrection, grant to your people to walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.